0: Well, it is said that the FBI trains its agents to spot counterfeit by training them to know the real thing. And the idea is if you know the real thing, then you'll be able to spot something that is fake or false. Now, I'm not an FBI agent. If I were, I probably couldn't tell you, but um, I did work at a bank for a number of years, and I can tell you that that's absolutely true. Um, over the course of the time that I spent at the bank working and uh, handling more money than I will ever know personally, um, the more you handle money, uh, the, the easier it is to spot those things that are fake or counterfeit. I mean, after a while, I didn't even need to use, you know, they had those little pens. Sometimes you see people using them in a store, and I kind of chuckled to myself. But you don't even have to use those because you see the real thing so often. So often, every single day, you see the real thing that that you can spot a difference in color. You can spot a difference in font. You can spot um, any number of differences that might come up when something is off. I think that principle is also true when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been thinking broadly about what the church must do over the past few weeks The church must pursue the unity of the gospel. We've been called to unity through the gospel. There's an organic unity of believers created in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It's our duty and privilege to preserve that unity through loving service to one another. The church must preach the gospel. We're called to make disciples. Making disciples requires a teacher, a student, and teaching we are the teachers as disciples of Jesus Christ. The students are the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And teaching involves both the gospel as well as all of what Christ commanded. That's ultimately how disciples are made. Through the preaching of the gospel, we are called by God. The Holy Spirit works in the preaching of the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. So it becomes necessary to make sure that we stay true to the gospel. No gospel, no faith. No gospel, no reconciliation. No gospel, no new life. Therefore, as we continue in this series this morning, we'll examine the third thing that we must do, and that is that we must guard the gospel. We must guard the truth of the word of God, the truth of the doctrine of our salvation, the truth of the one to whom the gospel and the doctrine of our salvation points to the Lord Jesus himself. We must guard that truth and we must guard our hearts against error. In order for us to guard that truth, we must know it well enough in order to be able to spot counterfeit, to be able to spot the false gospel. if you haven't, go ahead and turn to chapter 2 in Colossians. And there we'll examine a short section, verses 6 through 10. And in this section, we are exhorted by the Apostle Paul very plainly that the church can and really should cling to the truth of the gospel in order to avoid error. The church should cling to the truth in order to keep itself from error. Well, I'll read chapter two and um, we'll, we'll look at that for context, but we're going to focus specifically on verses six through 10, Colossians chapter two. He says, therefore, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen, my, seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or sabbath these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance Belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on to details about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father, thank you again for your word. I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Again, the church should cling to the truth in order to keep itself from error. And those really are the two points. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says the church should cling to the truth. And in verses 8 through 10, he calls us to keep ourselves from error. Cling to the truth and keep yourselves from error. Let's look at that first point. The church should cling to the truth in verses 6 and 7 again. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving well the therefore as we have discussed before signals us to what is about that what is about to be said is based on something that came before and what came before verses one through five which i already read for you he says for i want you to know how great a struggle i have for you and for those at laodicea for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of god's mystery which is christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is generally discussing his heart as an apostle for the churches. He has a great desire, he says, a struggle for the churches, particularly for those who have not seen him face to face. Colossae was a church not established by the apostle Paul, It was established by Epaphras. We're introduced to Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul indicates that Epaphras is a minister of Christ on their behalf. He's the one who shared the gospel with them. But even though Paul was not responsible for the establishment of this particular local group of believers, this church, he still desired their growth. He desired for them to have a stable faith in Christ. I mean, sometimes we have a hard enough time being faithful to church on our own, right? And when it comes to relationships between churches, sometimes there's an attitude of suspicion or wariness or not wanting to get too involved with other churches because we don't want to feel like they're, you know, controlling or encroaching on our our uh, our space. This dear brother, the apostle cared equally for all churches, whether the Lord used him to establish them or not. It didn't matter. Gospel ministry was gospel ministry. His desire was to see gospel ministry go forward. Wherever there were people who knew Jesus, who had come to faith in Christ, he desired to be a part of encouraging and building them up in the faith. And so, again, Paul expressed his struggle for them. This struggle was, as he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit, to, knit together in love, that their hearts might be encouraged, that they might be knit together as a, a body of believers in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And Paul uses that idea of the mystery frequently in his writings. And he says that this great thing, this, this great mystery, the thing that was previously, un- previously covered, previously hidden from generations past, God is now revealing in the church. God's master plan has been revealed in the church, and his master plan is Jesus. It's for Jesus Christ to be head over all. Paul desired for them to know this Jesus better. He wanted to make sure that they were not deluded by plausible arguments, and those plausible arguments were intended to do what? They were intended to take them away from Jesus. He wanted to see that they remained firm in their faith in Christ. And that really should be our desire for any believer. That, That one little snippet, that one little clause there should be our desire, obviously for our own faith, but also for every believer, that we remain firm in our faith in Christ. Paul's desire for them to remain firm in their faith in Christ is what immediately prompts the therefore in our text. I desire for you to remain firm in your faith in Christ. I've never personally had the opportunity to teach you as an apostle, so here it goes. Here's a part of my message to you. In order for you to remain firm in your faith in Christ Jesus, I desire to see your stability in Christ. Therefore, here's my encouragement to you. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him is the primary command in these two verses. That's The point that Paul is emphasizing, walk in him, walk in Christ. We've heard that term before. It's supposed to indicate the character of one's life. In other words, we are to abide in him, abide in Christ. We are to let our lives forever be characterized by Christ, not to stray from him. We'll get back to that idea in just a moment, but how are we to walk in Christ? It's really the the question that these two verses are answering, that this section is answering. Well, we abide in Christ by continuing to affirm the gospel by which we are saved. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. They received him. They were taught him. They were taught about Jesus Christ, the Lord. Again, Epaphras was a minister of Christ on their behalf. He shared the gospel with them. He preached Christ to them in the beginning. And Paul says, just as you received him initially, so walk in him. If you want to stay firm in your faith in Christ, you must abide in Christ. You must continue in him, just as he was proclaimed to you in the beginning of your faith. The gospel is a gospel which proclaims Jesus Christ, the Lord. We talked about that some last week. One of the elements of the gospel message that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 is the fact of the lordship of Jesus Christ, as he's Lord over all. The coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would rule, was foretold as far back as Genesis. He is the one who was prophesied to come as the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Moreover, in the progress of Revelation, this, this one who was to come was prophesied to come as a ruler over Israel, as the son of David in his lineage. We noted that after Jesus had risen from the dead from Matthew 28, he didn't say, hey, disciples, you see, now I'm the Messiah. He didn't have to say that. What did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And they knew what that meant. Because they were looking forward to the one who was to come, who would rule and reign over all. And Jesus says, I am he. Back to our text. Again, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's saying, in effect, if you've been given a gospel that proclaims Jesus Christ, the Lord, as the one to whom all authority has been given by God, the one who is sent as a sacrifice for our sins, the one who's risen from the dead, why would you accept a gospel that proclaims any other Jesus? This is the issue that the church of Colossae was facing. They were being offered a form of the gospel, a form of teaching that did not accord well with the gospel by which they were saved. And Paul is making an appeal to them to remain faithful to the truth. Any Jesus short of the Jesus to whom all authority has been given. Any Jesus short of a Jesus who was sent by God as a sacrifice for sins. Any Jesus short of a Jesus who is physically risen from the dead. Miraculous, yes. Impossible, no, because it is God we're speaking of. Any Jesus short of that mark is not the Jesus of the New Testament, not the Jesus of the gospel by which we are saved. It is a false gospel. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 that if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. No other gospel should be tolerated. Again, any gospel, any proclamation of Jesus should never fall short of the truth of who he is as Lord, as Messiah, as a lone sacrifice, the one risen from the dead, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. If you hear any teaching about Jesus that falls short of that, you need to run. You need to flee. And I said last week, and I'll say again, if you ever hear me speaking of a gospel or Jesus that's short of that, you need to run. You need to flee. Doesn't matter who it is. We abide in Christ by continuing to affirm the gospel by which we are saved. We abide in Christ by clinging to Christ as our source of life. Look at verse seven. It says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Jesus Christ is our source of life. Paul uses both agricultural and construction terminology to affirm this. He says we're rooted in him, rooted in Christ. I said that we would talk about being in Christ just a bit ago. We talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit last week. When the gospel goes forth, we believe that God does a miraculous work in our hearts. He changes our hearts from what the Bible says is a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Through the Holy Spirit, we're given the new birth, birth from above. Jesus spoke of this new birth in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, a very religious man. One who everyone probably would have thought, that guy is definitely going to heaven. But Jesus said, you won't even see the kingdom if you're not born again. He says, you need that new birth from above. Well, God does this through his Holy Spirit. When the gospel goes forth, we are spiritually united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection were baptized into Christ Jesus. Paul uses similar terminology in this chapter, in chapter 2 of Colossians. Look a little further down, verses 11 through 14. He says, "In, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, God cut off the old man. That old sinful you, God cuts it off of you. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal requirements this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I mean, that's the gospel. We, we owed a debt to God. We are sinners. We break the law of God, each and every one of us in some way or another. None of us are perfect. None of us abide by the standard of perfection that is God. And so what does he do? He could just Let us suffer the consequences that we deserve for breaking his law. But he deals with it himself. He sent Jesus into the world to die, not for his own sin, because Jesus never sinned. But Jesus died as a substitute for us. He was put forth as a substitute for us. And his death on the cross, he says that he nailed Our debt to the cross. He canceled our debt and nailed it to the cross. His death on the cross is payment for our sin. And those who believe that, God makes alive in Christ. Whereas Jesus physically died on the cross, he had to, he shed all of his blood, he died on the cross, he was buried. He was placed in a tomb and he rose again from the dead because death could not hold him because he was not a sinner. Because he earned life. And we are when we trust in the Lord Jesus as our sacrifice, we are spiritually united with him. And so just as he died and was risen again, we spiritually die to sin. And we are given new life from the dead. Our old self is crucified and our new self is risen spiritually and eternally connected to the source of life, to Jesus himself. Paul will say in Colossians chapter three that Christ is our life. And that's a confession of the Christian. Again, not that we're good people on our own, but that Jesus is our life. He's our source of life. Certainly, again, this is not a new doctrine. This is what Jesus himself declared in John chapter 15, the true vine passage. You guys remember that. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and i in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing jesus is the vine he is the source of life and we are the branches that come off of the vine in different directions if we're cut off from the vine then we have no life we die we're cast aside But the reality is that when we put our faith in Christ, we are forever eternally united with the vine. We have been rooted in Christ. We are organically connected to him as our head, as a source of life, just as a branch to a vine. We're rooted in Christ, but we're also built up in Christ. This construction metaphor envisions Christ as the cornerstone of a spiritual building. Peter makes reference to this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word, pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We have a cornerstone in our building. And it, uh, it's, it's indicated by the, the date 1924, indicating the year this ministry was born. A cornerstone is presumably the stone that is used to set the entire building correctly. The cornerstone is laid first, and every other stone is laid with respect to that location and the position of the cornerstone. It's perhaps the most important stone that's laid in any construction. Likewise, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is the living stone, the living cornerstone. And all who come to him by faith are being built up as a spiritual house, Peter says. We are made into living stones and we're built together with Jesus Christ into a dwelling of God for his spirit. They say often, but the church building is not the church. This is just a place where we gather. The church is the people. We are the ones who are being built as a dwelling of God in the spirit, not this brick and mortar. It's the people. And it starts with faith in Christ. Also, Paul's words in Ephesians 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And as we come to faith in Christ, we're being built into a dwelling place of God for the spirit, the church, again, not the building that we meet in is what God is doing in the world. He is building his church through the people. Paul says that this rooting in him and this being built in him leads to us being, as it says again in verse seven of our passage, established in the faith. And that really describes the progression of true faith in Jesus Christ. True faith grows to be established in the faith. A true faith, a true New Testament faith, those who are truly born again will grow to be more established in what they believe. They will not grow out of it. They will not grow discontent with it. They will not grow to disbelieve and walk away. Those who are truly in the faith are in the faith, again, because God has done a work in our hearts to give us new birth to build us into a dwelling of the spirit, to unite us with Jesus Christ so that he's the vine and we're the branches. This is what God does. Just as Jesus makes clear in John chapter 10, Jesus holds his people in his almighty hand and no one is greater than him. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. The faith is not something that we hold on to in that sense. The faith is something given to us by God and sustained in us by God. As Peter says, we are kept by the power of God through faith for our salvation. The doctrine or teaching of the perseverance of the saints is not a teaching that depicts humanity. The Christian is holding firmly to God or to certain religious principles, but rather the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The effect of the true gospel is that through the gospel, God takes hold of us and never lets us go. That is why the saints persevere. That is why we can never truly fall away. He is the source of life for us. And again, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. As you received him, just as you were taught in him. We need to continue to affirm the gospel by which we are saved. As we have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. we need to continue to cling to Jesus as the source of life. In this way, walk in him. By continually affirming the gospel and clinging to Jesus as the source of life, we are to walk in him abide in him the last thing he says in verse 7 is really the only right right response to all these things what ought to be characteristic of all believers we are to be abounding in thanksgiving Paul even says in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 that uh, it is the will of God for us in Christ that we give thanks I mean, that's the only right response that we be abounding in thanksgiving because God has done all of these great things for us. Again, we were sinners, lawbreakers. We deserve the judgment of God. And yet God in love did not ignore us in our sins, but provided a way for us to be forgiven, to be reconciled. He provided a way for us to be not cast aside in the judgment, but to be brought near. He did this by sacrificing his own son for us. He does this by uniting us with his son. Just as a branch is united to the vine, just as each one of the stones in our building outside is is connected to the cornerstone by some other stone, we are being built together into a spiritual house. That's something that God has done for us. How could you not give thanks? It is this gospel that saves. It is this gospel and this Jesus who is Lord over all to whom we owe our very lives and in whom alone we live. Again, Thanksgiving is the only right response. My author said it this way, the life which is all influenced by Thanksgiving will be pure, strong, happy in its continual counting of its gifts and in its thoughts of the giver. And not least happy and beautiful in its glad surrender to itself, of itself to him who has given himself for it and to it. The noblest offering that we can bring, the only recompense which Christ asks, is that our heart and our lives should say, we thank thee, O Lord. And our continual thanksgiving will ensure continuous growth in our Christian character and a constant increase in strength and depth of faith. Thanksgiving, giving thanks, continually reminding ourselves of what is true, clinging to what is true is a part of the way that we maintain our faith in Christ and that we grow in Christ and that we continue to be established in our faith in Christ. Beloved, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. This is the message that we must hold on to. The message of who Jesus is, is the message that we must proclaim. For as Peter says, there is truly salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. taking a step back again the church should cling to the truth in order to keep itself from error that's verses six and seven but second i'm sorry the church should cling to the truth verses six and seven. Second, the church should keep itself from error verses eight through ten let's look at those verses now And again, this is the heart of the main issue that the church at Colossae was facing. Epaphras came to Paul knowing that Paul had been gifted by God as an apostle for the building up of the church. And the influence from those who were preaching a different gospel was a clear and present danger. And so Epaphras needed help. And so he went to the apostle Paul for help with this issue that the church was facing. We read from Jude that those who would come, there was prophesied that there would be mocking, that there would be scoffing in the last day. And the church from the first century, even up until today, has been dealing with those who see the faith, who see Jesus, and they laugh. And they mock. And they say, why are you even worried about that? Why are you reading that old, ancient, outdated book? Why are you following that Jesus person? Or else they believe in a completely different Jesus altogether. Well, Paul's encouragement to them here is a warning. He says, see to it. And the original is the root of the word to see. Here it means to look at something or to take a look into something. In other words, to give careful attention to something, not a casual glance, but an intense gaze. Some translations will translate that word as to beware or be careful. That's kind of the idea. He says, Christian, you need to give attention to what I'm about to say. Be careful. See to it that this doesn't happen to you. Well, then what doesn't happen to you? Look at the verse again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You need to be aware. You need to be careful. Obviously, that suggests that it's possible for us to be taken captive, right? Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. We just affirmed that we couldn't because God is the one who holds us. To be captain here doesn't change the essence of who you are. He's not talking about those being captive and losing their faith, in other words. We do, however, use the term captivated to suggest that at times there are things that seem so compelling to us for one reason or another that our attention is immediately held captive by them. It may be an alluring image. It may be a sweet scent. It may be an overall feel of a place or a speech that someone delivers that is verbally captivating, interesting. And it, whatever this thing is, it draws us away from what we were doing and we give our full attention to it. Some of you remember where you were when JFK was assassinated. You remember where you were. You remember what happened. You remember hearing the news broadcast. Some of you remember 9-11. You remember where you were, exactly what you were doing at the time that it happened and when you heard. And you stopped what you were doing and your mind was drawn to that news report. And everyone was sitting captivated by the news. Possible for believers to be captivated by something other than Christ. Look at the description again in verse 8. He says that this potentially captivating thing, this enslaving thing, this other than Christ thing is some kind of philosophy and empty deceit. It's according to human tradition, according to what he calls the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and what does he mean by human tradition he doesn't exactly expound on the term here in their day the human traditions would have been a reference to various religious practices in verse 16 of our chapter Paul speaks of those who might pass judgment on questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or sabbath In other words, you need to eat certain kinds of food, drink certain drinks, participate in certain festivals. If you do these things, then you'll be in the know. In other words, then you'll be a part of that which will truly satisfy that which will fulfill whatever this philosophy that's according to human tradition had certain elements. This these traditional sort of religious elements as a part of them. And they were attempting to proclaim these things to the believers. And and again, all of those things were working to draw the believers attention away from Christ, not towards it. Paul reminds him in verse 17 that the reason why we don't need to follow such human traditions, those kinds of religious practices, and particularly the ones he lists in the text, is because they were a shadow of things to come. All of those things were appropriate in their time. Those festivals, those, the Sabbath day, those things were appropriate in their time, but they were really intended to point to Christ. They were a shadow of what was to come. Jesus Christ is the substance, Paul says. So we have the thing that is better. In our day, there are different kinds of philosophies based on human traditions. Ours is not really a religious society any longer. Nevertheless, our society has its own set of philosophies that it holds on to, traditions, even some that are still developing, that intend to show somehow that spiritual superiority or evolution of our best life now, a a greater sense of freedom and fulfillment comes in some way other than christ and these are a danger even for the church these are the kinds of philosophies that say you are free you ought to be free from the tyranny of binary thinking gender is merely a construct of society therefore we should cast aside those socially constructed thought patterns and you can be whatever you want to be it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks Doesn't matter what you choose, doesn't matter what kind of impact it has on other people, you can be and do whatever you want. In fact, this new way of thinking is so significant, so important, so necessary for the thriving of what the elites consider to be an enlightened society, that they're teaching this new kind of philosophy, even to the very young. School curriculums, even in elementary school, are being completely revamped, redone, restructured to include this kind of thinking. And parents are being called unhelpful, being called bigots, being threatened to have their children taken away from them if they don't affirm this way of thinking. About the philosophy of autonomy. My body belongs to myself. To, it belongs to me alone. Anything that happens inside of my body is all about my choice, my own a matter of my own personal health, even if there is a new life inside of me. I mean, that's, we all understand that that's how life begins. Like, we all, we all know that deep down inside, and yet somehow we've, we've convinced ourselves that something else is happening there. He says it's philosophy and empty deceit, right? There's, a, there's an element of deception that comes in with these philosophies. And so we've convinced ourselves that though this is ultimately how new life begins, how a new life comes into the world, just because it's my body, I should be able to do whatever I want without regard to that new life, because it's all about me. Of course, we have the same old philosophies of humanism, the insistence that humans are basically good and always progressing toward their best self. There's a whole wave of literature, comic books, you know, all the, the, the major comic book um, series that are out nowadays are all about seeing humans evolve to be their best kind of self. And we may joke about those things and laugh at those things, and we kind of, you know, dismiss the comic books, but that's real in people's minds, like becoming that evolved human, the greater You is the idea behind it. If not humanism, good old materialism, right? Always having bigger, always having better, doing whatever it takes to have bigger and better. We talked about this last week, but how about the all-pervasive your truth versus my truth philosophy? And I think we do that ultimately because we want to be able to excuse whatever we believe. We want to be able to be comfortable with whatever we believe. And so if we ever get to the point of, having a contradictory belief to someone else, an easy way out of that is just to say that's your truth and this is my truth. And again, there's a measure of deceit there because it is completely and totally illogical to speak of truth in that way. The minute you start to speak of truth in that way, you diminish the integrity of truth. Truth is reality. I even looked it up on merriam webster and that's what it says. It says something to the effect that truth is reality, is what actually happens. The body of real things, events and facts is what it says. Well, If truth is the body of real things, events and facts, then it is by definition the standard of what is real. And so you can't have two different standards of what is real. That doesn't work. It makes no logical sense, and we all understand that deep down inside, but we ignore that in order to be able to move forward with our own philosophy. Empty and deceitful philosophies rooted in human tradition, human thinking, human concepts, human wisdom, and those things are abounding. And it is possible for believers to be led astray, to be held captive by those things. We wonder sometimes how Christians get to the point of wandering away from their stability of faith in Christ, how some Christians are so weak in the faith, so easily persuaded to join in with the thinking of the way that the world does. When we have conversations with some Christians about life events, about current events, and we see and hear them respond in the way that we would expect for an unbeliever to respond without hope, without faith in Christ, we wonder, how did they get there? And this is how they got there. Because they were weak in their faith. They, they have not been clinging to the head, who is Christ. And they've been allowing themselves to be take, cap, taken captive by the philosophies of the world. Sometimes these philosophies and empty deceit are, again, according to human tradition. Sometimes they're according to the elemental spirits of the world. There's a lot of debate about what the elemental spirits of the world refers to. Some have thought it refers to the more concrete realities of earth, wind, fire, water, those elements, perhaps even the sun, the moon, the stars. Others have thought that it references the more abstract ideas of those things that are in the heavenlies, perhaps certain spiritual forces and powers. Paul talks about some of those things later on in this chapter in verses 18 through 23. He talks about asceticism and the worship of angels, the elemental spirits of the world in verse 20. Regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body. All of these things, I think, are pointing to that same idea. He's most likely referencing when he says the elemental spirits, he's talking about some spiritual entities, perhaps, that were believed to be in charge of different aspects of the cosmos, angels in charge of different elements, and their effect on humanity. Thus, again, the worship of angelic beings. Some of the thought and philosophy philosophy of their day had even determined that all things physical were ultimately evil. And so you had to get rid of all things physical and only believe in that which was non-physical. Now, I don't know that we have an exact equivalent to that kind of thought in our day. Again, our day is largely marked by secularism. Certainly, there are still some who hold to a form of spiritualism, various kinds of spirits, the occult, angelic beings, even Satan worship. Those things are still present in our day. But whether it is a desire to believe that which is in accord with human tradition or a desire to look for some other kind of spirituality to follow. The point is, as Paul says, that ultimately these things are not according to Christ. And that's the main issue. That's what he's warning against. All of these different philosophies and ideologies are ultimately not leading us to faith in Christ, but they're leading us away from faith in Christ. And just in case we were not clear on that point, Paul again expresses why it's necessary for us to remain faithful to Christ, to steadfastly abide in him. Look at verses 9 and 10. And let me say first, this section really extends to verse 15. But verses 9 and 10 are more like a summary statement of what he's getting at. Verses 9 and 10, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I mean, which of those philosophies and human traditions trumps God himself? Which of those elemental spirits, which angelic being, which spiritual power quote-unquote is higher than god himself the creator of the universe paul says in christ is the fullness of deity there are some jehovah's witnesses who have a problem with john chapter 1 verse 3 where it says in the word was god but i don't see how you can escape seeing the deity of christ in paul's words here in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. Jesus Christ is fully God. There's no, way to un- no other way to understand that. Now I want you to understand and, and remember that this has been Paul's constant message to the church at Colossae. Again, Epaphras comes to him and he says there are people preaching this other gospel that is trying to draw the church away from Christ. And Paul says in Colossians Stay with Jesus, stick to Jesus, keep your attention on Jesus, don't lose sight of who Jesus is. Jesus is the most important person in all the cosmos, and he ought to be the most important person in your life. He starts with that even in chapter one, look at chapter one, verse 15. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the big idea of all of God's creation. He is the preeminent one. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who God sent for us and for our salvation. You cannot have God apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot have less of God if you have Jesus Christ. You will always have God in all of his fullness if you have the Lord Jesus Christ. One author said that Jesus is the essence of God, undivided in all its whole fullness. The question is, do you believe that? That truth is foundational to Christianity. You cannot be a Christian without believing and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is fully God. Paul doesn't stop there. He says that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been made full. In the original, the same word is used. In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells, and in Jesus, you are full. You are complete. You have been made full in Christ. The best. The greatest, the completest, the freest, the most evolved, the most whole you can ever be is only found in Jesus Christ by faith in him. It is an eternal and divinely filled kind of fullness. It is the filling of a cup that is supernaturally expanded to receive an eternal deposit. The eternal fountain of living water flowing into a well that is always full, but never overflowing. That's who we are in Christ. The confession of the Christian in any day is as we sing. In other times, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. That is a result of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We are made whole. We are made full. Jesus Christ, the Lord, the one who is fully God, the one who is risen from the dead, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is fully sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Any gospel that does not affirm this truth is not the true gospel. And beloved, it is your responsibility to see to it that you are not led astray by any other philosophy or ideology. We must guard this message and we must guard ourselves against any other message. We must cling to the truth in order to keep ourselves from error. Just a few points of application as we close here. First, to those of you who feel empty, perhaps you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus. You don't know yourself to be a believer. And maybe you feel empty, rejected, lost, weighed down, crushed under the weight of the world, under the weight of hateful people, hurtful problems. The message to you is to come to Jesus. In him is all the fullness of deity bodily. In him, you can be made full. You can be made complete if you come to Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, it is possible for us to be led astray. Therefore, we must endeavor to stay close to Christ, to abide in him. This has to be a conscious decision. There needs to be effort put into it. We're not to coast in our spirituality in our walk with Christ. We're to dig deep, to sweat and labor, to pursue Christ. Through prayer and practice, we must abide in him. That means that we need to stay close to his word, his truth jesus prayed to the father sanctify them by your truth your word is truth we need to stay close to his word we need to make his word gathering together around his word a priority in our life a priority not a secondary affair we need to make our daily intake of his word a priority we need to know the word of god so well that we can easily spot any potential counterfeit also we must speak confidently about his truth to the world What are they used to say in the court? When you stand up and you give an oath, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Beloved, we need to go forth and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to the world. That's the only way anyone will be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ who is Lord over all, risen from the dead, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, is the only gospel that saves because he's the only Jesus who saves. Anything less is not salvation. Will not result... And true faith. Jesus Christ is. An exclusive. Exclusively the only savior. He said that himself. And we have to speak confidently about that. Also, we never have to worry about falling away. Again, Jesus is the one who saves us. He keeps us. He abides with us and in us. And finally, and I hope that this last one is encouraging to you, and it was encouraging for me thinking about this this week. Knowing that we have been made full in the Lord Jesus Christ with all the fullness of God means that even during those times in life when we feel that we are not enough, when we feel that what we face is too difficult, when the weight of the world is on our shoulders, when we feel overwhelmed and insufficient for the task or season that we are in, yes, we as Christians can feel that way. In those times, we can remember that we do not walk this life alone. Even if every other person in life forsakes us, Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, will never forsake us. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one in whom is all the fullness of deity bodily, is the one who is in us. He is the one who is for us. He is the one who fills us to all the fullness of God. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the reminder of this truth. We thank you that your grace is indeed sufficient for us. That you have poured out your grace, your mercy, your goodness on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That even as in him is all the fullness of who you are. In him we are made. and father we're grateful for that truth we pray that you'd help us to stay close to your truth that your word your truth would continue to sanctify us that you would continually speak to us from your word your truth take your truth plant it deep in us shape and fashion us in your likeness keep us from error we pray this in christ's name amen